Hello. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. We hope that you will be encouraged and it builds your faith. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Pastor Adam. Amen. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Well, it's good to be in the house of the Lord tonight. Amen. And it's good to be in God's presence. Um, I do know this. Uh, hopefully, you're joining us in time of fasting and prayer and in this season. And here's what I've always happens when I begin to fast and pray. And I hope you all will forgive me because there's times when I fast and pray that while I'm fasting and praying that sometimes there's a little bit of edge on my personality. (laughs) And so if I seem to be, if I snap at you or, uh, well, you know, I I try to be nice to everybody, but sometimes, you know, when you're fasting and praying and if you love food as much as I love food and you're denying yourself uh, things, sometimes you can get a little edgy. It's kind of like a pregnant woman that needs to eat. And if she don't get, you know, when my wife was pregnant, the first priority I had every day was to make sure she was fed. And, uh, and, and that made a happy pregnant wife. And because we would, I, she would get off work at five o'clock and the first child we had, she craved uh, gravy. She craved uh, gravy over, over mashed potatoes and gravy over roast beef and white bread. And she never ate mashed potatoes, she never ate gravy, and she never ate white bread. And it was contrary, but she wanted it every day. We, we left her office and went to Perkins almost every day. She was pregnant. I got pregnant uh, during that time because I grew about 50 pounds during our first one's pregnancy. And, uh, and so I just blew out with her as she blew out and she got rid of hers, and I kind of kept mine for a long time. And, uh, but I know someone who's pregnant with something, I know how hungry they can be. How many know spiritually when you're pregnant, you're hungry? How many know spiritually when you're carrying the purpose of God in your life, you can become hungry for the things of God? And so uh, I just want to encourage you that during this time of fasting and prayer, and a lot of times I just have to learn just to get alone. And, uh, but that, that means God, the, the fasting and prayer is working and that God is working. I want to share with you a word that's on my heart tonight. I believe it's God-born. I believe it's heavy. It's heavy on my heart. And it's in my spirit. This is fresh off the press. Uh, this, is, uh, this is not something that uh, I've taken weeks to prepare like some of the messages that I do. But uh, this is fresh off the press. This is something God has put on my heart and uh, I want to share it with you tonight because I feel like it's a heavy, heavy burden. Now, I know all that the Lord's given me on this. I ain't going to be able to share it tonight. I'm just going to have to piece together what I can. Uh, but there is an emphasis that I want to get to tonight. So if you'll turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6. Actually, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 5 and 6. But chapter 6 and the first part of chapter 6 is what I want to focus on tonight. So that will be our, that will be our theme scripture as we... Uh, game this. In Isaiah chapter 6, and uh, uh, this is a very powerful verse of scripture, and uh, tonight we're going to look at one of the most monumental portions of scripture here in chapter 5 and 6 of the book of Isaiah. And uh, I'm often, when I think of this, I'm often reminded of what the apostle Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1. And verse 12, when he said, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though that you have known them or they have been established and you've known them as present truth already. And, uh, but in verse 13, he says, it is, it is, it, it, it's right as long 
as, uh, as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you. In other words, the Apostle Paul is, says there's times that I will constantly remind you of certain things, not the fact that you don't know them already because you already know the present truth, but, but Peter was saying, so that I may stir up by reminding you. How many know when certain scriptures we hear and read, it stirs our spirit up? And so I want to stir your spirit up tonight. I'm going to share with you a present truth that you already know, but I want to stir your spirit up. The word there means to fan or to awaken or to fan the flame of or to rekindle, to stir up, to rekindle or to set a fire again. How many know it's good every once in a while to have our, uh, uh, have our lives set back on fire again? By being reminded of the promises that we have. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning to verse 1, it says, In the year that Uzziah, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered with his face. With two he covered with his feet. And with two and two that flew. The one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And in verse 4 it says, And the post of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. I said, Isaiah responding, this is his response, Woe is me, I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. How I many know that's a powerful scripture? And we've read that many times. And so there's no doubt tonight, you know, I know, we've talked about it for weeks, that we are living in a really a time of chaos in our nation, in our world. And it's very clear. I mean, you, you have to be under rock to not know what is happening in our culture. But also, unlike, not unlike the times that Isaiah lived in, he too was living in a time period of a nation that was in severe moral and spiritual crisis. He too was in the same position that we are in tonight. In fact, Isaiah, as well as the other pre-exile prophets that prophesied during that time, uh, had warned Israel of the coming judgment and the course, uh, it came in the form, in other words, they prophesied God is getting ready to bring judgment upon you, that God is bringing judgment. It was a warning that was continually going out, that Jerusalem would be destroyed, you would be carried off into Babylonian captivity, and Isaiah, uh, all of a sudden, he has a front row seat to watching this happen all around him. He is in this position where he is watching his nation continue to plummet and plummet, but yet him and Jeremiah and many of the prophets that were prophesying and warning at that time, they were warning and warning and warning, uh, warning. but Isaiah, living in that day, watched his nation begin to fall, and he could hear the footsteps of Assyrians, he could hear the footsteps of the Babylonians, he could hear the footsteps of them coming, and as he warned, his warning was completely and continually was ignored. As I begin to think of this chapter, how are we not getting a front row seat of watching our nation 
totally fall into total chaos and watching our nation to continue to make decisions and continue to make decisions that seems like that is going to do nothing but bring about the judgment of God upon our lives. And so, and, but we as a church, we have to continually warn and continually proclaim the gospel. And just like in Isaiah's day, we have to ask the question, you know, the question that might be posed in these two chapters of verses 5 and 6. Now listen, Isaiah's experience in chapter 6, the experience he has with God, would not be possible had not there been a chapter 5. Chapter 5 prepared Isaiah's heart to experience God in the way that he did. And I want you to know that our nation, where it is now, can prepare us to have an encounter with God that we personally can again return back and say, God, we want to have an encounter with you again. We know our world is spinning into chaos, but God, let us enter back into the temple like Isaiah did. That in the time of chaos, he did not run to an idol. He did not run to what his security was. He ran to the house of the Lord. It's a place of refuge in this hour. How many know the church should be a place of refuge for us in this hour, in this chaotic time? The question is this. The question that Isaiah asked and the question that is being asked and the question that we can ask one another tonight is what is needful in this hour? What kind of person is God looking for in this time of crisis? What is needful for our nation? What is needful in this hour for the believer and for the church? Where, where, what should be... What, what should be, what is, what is God looking for in the believer in this hour and in this time? What kind of individual does God want to raise up in the times like this? Having a front row seat like Isaiah had, of watching his nation spin out of control, yet though the clarion call would go and keep going and keep going, yet there is no response from the nation, but not only a response from the nation, there's not much of a response from God's people. What is more scarier? And so as we begin to understand this crisis and, the, and, and what, what, you know, of the crisis that exists in, in the nation, looking at chapter 5, turn over to chapter 5 in the beginning of chapter 5 because I want to begin this by understanding what happens in chapter 5, what this picture, that God paints a beautiful picture in chapter 5. There's an explanation of what leads into chapter 6. There's a picture that God paints. There's a picture that God gives Israel of themselves. When we begin to look like this, and the language is amazing. Matter of fact, it's beautiful. Matter of fact, it is, a, it is, it is, it is written. It is musical. In other words, it is language that is spoken. A matter of fact, the chapter begins with a song. It begins with a song that is a sad song. It's not a happy song. It's a song of weeping. It is a song that is sad. And listen, let me just tell you this. As, as we get through this chapter 5, I'm not trying to preach negativity tonight, but I want us to know awareness. Because in chapter 6 is the encounter, but chapter 5 is a place where we learn the need for the encounter. How many know to have the encounter, you must understand there's a need for the encounter. For God to move in our lives, we must understand that there is a need for an encounter with God. There is a need for God to touch us and for God to move on our hearts. And this, this can be corporately or individually in our life. 
As we begin to look at this in chapter 5, it begins with a song. And as I said, it was a sad song. Let's begin to look at verses 1 and 2. Now let me sing to my, to my well-beloved a song, a song of my beloved regarding his, his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard. And on a very fruitful hill, he dug it up and cleared it out the stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes or brought forth sour grapes, as some translations may say, that it brought forth sour grapes. Some translations may say it produced useless grapes or grapes that were useless. The bohoshin is the word in Hebrew. It means a sour, it means a sour, unedible berry is what it means. It is a sad song. In an agrarian culture, everything in, is, 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 everything in production of a vineyard is important. Look at this vineyard that God built. He, he built it. He purchased the land. He cleared the stones. He planted the choice vine. He built and protected it and around it, built the tower and protected it. He hired those to care for it. But, but what happened was is that in its expect, his expectation in doing that would that there would be produced useful grapes, but only to find that at harvest time came uh, the useless sourberry, the bohoshim, or the Hebrew, the useless grapes. That's a sad song in an agrarian society. That is a sad song. Here the Lord talks about a vineyard he planted, it is a vineyard he prepared. And how many know that the Lord's preparing a vineyard, it's going to be done right? And if the Lord prepared the vineyard, should God not expect that the fruit that comes out of that vineyard be useful and be choice and be the best? But yet somehow this vineyard produced useless grapes. It produced, it was a sad song of the hour. And so first of all, I want us to see this parable that is taking place here. I want you to see first this parable. Look at verses 3 and verses 4. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judea, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes or useless grapes? Why forth? In other words, God's personal testimony of his own vineyard, which he had made his own investment into, only to have it produce useless grapes. What are we talking about here? What are we, what are we saying? What, and, and, and in verse 5, God says, now, because it has brought forth useless grapes, look what I shall do to it. Look at verse 5. It says, and now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it in waste, and it shall be pruned or dug. But there shall come up briars and thorns, and I will also command the clouds that they rain no more. In other words, God says, because I've done everything that I can, the vineyard is now not producing good grapes, and because it is, now what's going to come and what's going to happen is 
is that this vineyard is going to fall into a place of, of, of desolation. This vineyard is going to fall into a place of destruction. And to, it's going to be flattened and it's going to be cursed. In other words, I've invested in it. But I'm going to tear down the hedge. I'm going to remove the wall. I'm going to let it be trampled. It's going to lay in waste. It's going to become bone dry. The briars are going to grow. In other words, this is a vineyard that now, which was supposed to be fruitful, now has become cursed. Look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judea and his And his pleasant, he looked for justice and behold, oppression. He looked for righteousness, but behold, there was a cry for help. What is he saying here? What he's saying is, is that now he tells us who the vineyard was. The vineyard he's talking about is the God's people, the children of Israel. And when he planted the vineyard, he expected justice and righteousness to come out of it. He expected justice and righteousness to prevail. This is God's people. God has made an investment in this people only to produce sour berries, only to produce that which is sour, only to produce that which is what was supposed to be justice. Some translation said has turned into bloodshed. How many know when there's an in, when injustice is rampant in the land, there's bloodshed? Are we not living that out? Are we not living that in the hour we live in? Are we not seeing bloodshed in the streets because injustice and justice does not prevail? But the justice they want is human justice. God says if you want true restitution or true restoration, you need godly justice. Right? And he said instead, instead of seeing the vineyard, instead of seeing uh, 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 righteousness, you are seeing this cry for help. You're seeing distress. So you see a, a nation that is full of bloodshed, and you see a nation that is full of distress when it should be full of justice and righteousness. And God says that this vineyard is dried up. This is Israel. This is where they are. This is the seat that Isaiah has. He's watching this play out, and he's in the midst of this in this, this moment, and he's watching this being played out. He's watching this cry. He's watching what God has invested in turn sour. And and, and it brings upon them a curse. It brings upon God's judgment. And when we go back to interpret this, how do we look at this? How do we look at this this vineyard that God built? And when we look back at the earlier verses in verse 1, it said it was a beloved vineyard on a fruitful hill. What does that mean? You know that, that Israel is one of the most fruitful Lands there are. You know the, great, the best vegetables and produce in the world come out of Israel? Do you realize that one of the reasons why that protects Israel from being invaded uh, somewhat in the hour we live in is because they produce a huge market of produce for the rest of the Middle Eastern world? Some of the choices of all. He said it was a fruitful hill that I planted them on. It was a fruitful hill. It was a, it, it was, it was a, it was a choice estate or property. It was the choicest vines. Do you realize that Israel, most of all of the great technology today, that Israel owns many of the patents and many of the inventions and many of the breakthroughs in our nation, that, they, that Israel is the one who has invented, produced, and promoted much of the breakthroughs that are in our world? The choice is vines. He said they're the choice is vines. 
He said he removed the stones. He dug it deep and removed the stones. Stones are symbol of opposition. They're symbol of opposition. When God set Israel apart, he removed the Canaanite culture. He removed the Egyptian culture. He removed all the stumbling blocks in the society, and he removed the stones. Why did he remove the stones? Because when you remove the stones, then the, then the vineyard, then the vine can grow right. The vine can get rooted. The vine can get deep. The vine can be productive when you remove the stones. You understand that this vineyard that God has planted, it is particular. He said he prepared a wine vat, it tells us. And where wine could flow freely. It is a picture of the sacrificial system that he set it up for Israel. Israel had a way to be redeemed back to God. They had this, they had this redemption that came through the blood and sacrifice. And that, and that through that blood and sacrifice, that blood covered their sin, covered for atonement. Do you see the picture here? God made them in a perfect way. What more could God have done? I asked you tonight, what more could God have done do for us? What more could he have provided? What more could Jesus have done? What more could the cross have produced? What more righteousness could Je- how more righteous could Jesus have been? How more perfect could he have been? How great a more of a savior could he have been? But yet all that God produced this place laid and wasted. Laid in. The point is the planting of the vineyard was, was done with great detail and such care. Everything could have been possible that had to be done. And it said he expected to produce great grapes. Here is a people that is full of privilege and blessing and protection and provision. And they all they had to do was produce and give back to God. Do you not think that we are a privileged people tonight? We are a privileged people. We are the New Testament vineyard for God. He has, he has made everything available to us. He, he, he removes the stumbling block, does he not? He's allowed us to where we can be rooted in the word and rooted in righteousness and where we can produce good fruit in our lives and in our personal lives. Has he not provided everything you and I need in this hour? But yet we have the seat of Isaiah and we, as Isaiah saw his nation that was privileged and blessed Turn away from God. Reject God. So are we seeing in this hour a a rejection of God in in a season that we're in. But yet, how does God respond to that? He looked for justice and righteousness and all he saw was bloodshed and despair. Now the question, and it's a rhetorical one, that is given in verse 3. God says this. He says, you judge. That's what he said in verse 3. He says, you tell me did I do that which was right? He's asking Isaiah. I mean, that's the question God is asking us. What more could he do? Right? Has God, God has done enough. God is asking that rhetorical question to us. In other words, it's forcing the reader to, to exonerate and to say the fault does not lie with God, but the fault lies with man. How many know we only go as far as we allow God to go? We only reach where God allows us, where we allow God to reach. We only produce what we allow God to produce in our life. We only go as deep as we want to go. We only go as deep as we want to go. In other words, what it is saying, God has already done enough, but we have to make the choice to go and produce the fruit that is going to make a change, a fruit that is going to be worthy of his investment into the vineyard of our life. We choose. We have that choice. 
And so we have seen the parable. We have seen the parable. But in the parable, you go behind the scenes of the parable. Now, for sake of time, because I do want to get someplace tonight, I'm going to give you a little bit. Behind the scenes of the parable, starting in verse 8, what you begin to see is you begin to see this more perspective, specific perspective here that the Lord begins to set. Uh, he begins to show us what specific sins that destroyed them. He begins to talk about what was it specifically. We know that he planted a vineyard. We know that he gave them privilege and promise and protection. And because of that, they were to produce, but they didn't. And, and what was supposed to be righteousness wasn't righteousness. And what was supposed to be uh, 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 delivered uh, as, as fruitful was not fruitful. And what was supposed to be justice was not justice. But what are the deeper reasons? God, all of a sudden now we go behind the parable. We go into the deeper aspects of what God is saying in this chapter. Now he begins to put his finger on areas of our life. Don't you love it when God puts his finger on specific areas of our life? It's one thing for God to proclaim something and make us aware that we have fallen short. But how do we respond really when God puts his finger specifically on an area of our life that needs to be made right with God? That's what he does in the remainder of this chapter, beginning in verse 8. Matter of fact, he speaks of the specific sins that brought them down. And then the sin is identified in each case by the word woe. He uses the word woe in order to specifically let you know that these specific violations of his vineyard is what brought, is what braining and pending judgment. You see it in verse 8. You see it in verse 11. Verse 18. Verse 20. Verse 21 and verse 22. And he begins to specifically. So now God goes from the generality of no righteousness and justice and bloodshed and distress. Now he begins to label the sin. He begins to, he begins to deal with it. He begins to character, give the characteristics of uh, the sins that they were engaged in. I'm going to give them to you real quick. I can't spend a lot of time on it because I do want to get to chapter 6. The first is we see this grasping materialism in verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says, Woe to those who join, who join house to house, that add the field to field, till there is no place where they may dwell in the midst of the land. I am hearing the Lord of hosts said, Truly many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitants. For the ten acres of the vineyard shall yield one bath and a homer of seed shall yield one ephah. What is he saying here? He, is, he says one of the things that they've done is they've given in to grasping materialism. They've allowed materialism. They've allowed the consumption, their, their desire and greed to consume, to override their faithfulness to God. Isn't that interesting? They, were, they consumed everything. God said, look, what I'm going to do, I'm going to bring those houses that you build, those, the material things that you put into, they're going to be empty. And you're going to experience the very things that you are constantly consuming, constantly consuming without knowledge of God. And what's going to happen is you're going to have famished conditions that are going to show up in the midst of where you are. Secondly, we see in verse 11, we see the second woe, and it says, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may, that, that they may follow intoxicating drink who continue until night till wine inflames them. 
The harp and the strings and the tambourines and the flute and the wine are in their feast, and they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor consider the operation of his hands. Number two, the second woe he pronounces is there is a, a drunken, a drunken uh, pleasure-seeking people. Not only are they grasping materialism, but now they're being drunken and intoxicated uh, with pleasure. Pleasure is an intoxication with them. Y'all see this beginning to play out. You begin to see what Isaiah is beginning to see in Israel. It's not too bad a seat from where we are that we begin to see some of the same things happening in our culture. Verse 3 and verse 18. You see, in, you see verse 18, the third one. It's defiant sinfulness. Look at this in verse 18. This amazes me. I mean, I, I'm, I'm struck by what it says. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity. And sin, as it were, with a, 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 a cart, a rope. Let, let, let him make speed and haste his work, that we may see it and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come, that we may know it. Here's what they're saying. This is what they're saying. They are living in defiant sinfulness. In other words, the, the picture analogy here in the Hebrew is that, that they would attach cart loads to animals and those, those beasts of burdens would carry those cartloads. But they're using the analogy of people who are carrying around baggage and cartloads of iniquity and sin on them. And as they carry that iniquity themselves, they're walking with baggage and iniquity and sin, but yet they stand and they shake their fist at God and say, is God going to do something? Let him come and do it now. In an amazing the imagery here is people who are full of iniquity shaking their fist at God and saying, God, if you're going to do something, why don't you come and do it now? It is, it is, it is a defiant in their sinfulness. <laughs> Hang with me. It's a, it is an incredible picture. Blatant mockery of God. Dragging around like a beast of burden their sin. Shaking their fist at God. Begging him to do something and mocking me. It was amazing. When we were in Key West, we visited Ernest Hemingway's home. And it's amazing. Ernest Hemingway, he, you know, he, he fought many revolutions. But he had an incredibly immoral life. Matter of fact, he was an abusive man. He abused every woman he was, he was a part of. He's very immoral. Matter of fact, at one time, he had shaken his fist at God and said, God doesn't have the nerve Isn't that amazing? But what was his end? He run himself off to a private place and put a gun in his mouth and blew the back of his brains out. Men carry their iniquities, shake their fist at God. But I'm here to tell you their end is not good. Sinclair Lewis, he was hailed for his literary genius, for his treatment of Christianity and the famous novel that he wrote, Elmer Gantry, mocking the preacher in the book of the gospel as a fraud and as someone who is to be mocked. He was given awards for it, but he died an alcoholic at a third-rate clinic somewhere outside of Rome, completely lonely and completely isolated by himself. Men shake their hands at God, pridely dragging around their sinful pride, Shaking their fist at God 
in defiance to do something about it. We had a governor of our state in this pandemic when it began to subside in certain areas. We had a governor that said God had nothing to do with it. That we are the ones that helped. I want to tell you tonight, God has everything to do with it. Every blessing and privilege we have, God has everything to do with it. And it's amazing to me how men continue to carry, carry their iniquities, but yet shake their, faith, their hand at God. This is the hour we live in. I'm not trying to be negative. I'm just telling you what it is tonight. Verse 20, we see the woe of moral perversion. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 tells us this. It says, it says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In other words, here's the thing. It's, it's a moral perversion. What happened in the society? There was this, everything got reversed. Everything got reversed. In other words, what was pure was now called unclean. What was sweet became bitter. And everything got reversed, complete moral reversal. There was a, everything that was good was called evil, and everything evil was called good. There's this complete reversal of morality. I'm not too sure we don't live there. In that hour where there's a complete reversal of morality. Number five, there's this arrogant conceit you see in verse 21. It says, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and are prudent in their own sight. If I hear one more opinion from somebody, I'm going to puke. <laughs> Everybody's got an opinion. And that's because our media today, I mean, we, we just, I mean, I'm telling you, everybody's got an opinion for something. <laughs> they got an answer for anything. Man walks around wise in his own eyes. Thinking he's wise. There's this arrogant conceit. Look at verse 22. Now you see this corruption in verse 22. Woe to, to mighty men at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice for, from a righteous man. In other words, what's it talking about here? It's talking about men, mighty men. It's speaking of, of or some translations say hero. Some translations say mighty some say uh, uh, violent men. It's, it's a, these are words for leaders. Corrupt leadership. Corrupt leadership. This corruption of leadership. This corruption of leadership. They're drunken with intoxication of power. They take bribes. They have no integrity. They abandon righteousness and justice. So here we see Isaiah here is proclaiming all of these secret sins, all of these specific sins, the grasping of materialism, the drunken uh, uh, pleasure-seeking, the defiant sinfulness, the moral perversion, the arrogant conceit, the corrupt leader. How many know that's enough to make you depressed tonight? <laughs> I mean, you read all of that in, 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 in this society, and, and, and I'm telling you, I mean, does not all of this sound vaguely familiar to us? Is it not, it's not a stretch to say that some of our nation is engaged in this. This grasping materialism. Like no other society. Men cannot get enough. They cannot get enough things. Do we not see this desire for pleasure, this madness, this society that has broken out? 
to seek pleasure and partying and all of this pleasure seeking. We have more amusement parks. We have more sports. We have not, Listen, those things are not wrong in context. What I'm saying is we have a society that finds its self-worth in the pleasure of those things. Uh, it has. It's become idolization. And we, we defiant sinfulness. We see that this moral perversion, this reversal. Marriage is bad, but living together is noble. Who never thought that? You know how many people that, that, that well, I'm going to not go there. No, really. Most people are live together, they have children, and then they get married. I don't care if that makes you mad. We nobleize that kind of thing. We've reversed what God has wanted us to do. We reverse the fact that God builds marriages on foundations of His Word and the foundation of how He created man and woman to come together. Men defy that by doing the opposite. And, and listen, it is a defiance, it is a moral responsibility. You know, we have defined relationship as man and woman, but now we define it as not just man and woman, but having other options. <laughs> right? And when I say other options, I mean other options. When I was out in California, you know, you know in California they have quad marriages. Yeah, they were telling me there's quad marriages. They have two, two women and two men are married, all four of them together. Oh, Lord, Jesus. Or they have two women and one guy, or two guys and one girl. That's, they do that. They, they, they do that in California. <laughs> I couldn't have to, y'all. They'd bury me. They'd, they'd, hurt, they'd hurt me. <laughs> Is that not the world we are living in? It's one of many options. Arrogant society. More corrupt society. Not only in our government, but we're seeing it in religion. Right? We're watching the moral failure of men begin to break down even in our society. And we're seeing men that God has elevated and God has given favor to. We're seeing them make choices now. And now corruption and immorality flows in their life. And now their witness is destroyed because they had a moment of passion or a moment of sinfulness. And really it's arrogance to believe that you're the exception and not the rule. I'm not talking about people that don't make mistakes. My goodness, we all, we all make mistakes. We all, all of us. But the truth is, when we are in leadership, when we are in a place of responsibility, and we get into that place of leadership, of corruption, and when corruption filters in, it becomes dominant. This is what Isaiah is seeing. He's seeing all of this. So after seeing all of that, I come to this. And, and, and we come to chapter 6. After seeing all of that come, we see, we see all of a sudden God all of a sudden tells us why. In verse 24 or 5, he tells us that the reason why all this happens is because of the rejection of God. He goes into telling them that the rejection of the law of the Lord. In other words, they, they, they've come to this place and then we can refer back to Isaiah chapter 1. In the first 10 verses of Isaiah chapter 1, he begins to list what is taking place in Israel. And he says this, If it only had been, have it not been for the remnant, 
That generation could have been labeled just as Sodom and Gomorrah, but God spared a remnant. That's a powerful statement. I mean, that is a powerful picture. I mean, every day we, we may be getting more and more like Gomorrah. I don't know. But then verse 26 of chapter 5 says, and then God begins to whistle the captives and the judgment to come. God releases the judgment upon them, and all of a sudden the judgments are coming. In the midst of this, this is where Isaiah is prophesying. In the midst of this, this is where Isaiah is trying to find hope. In the midst of this, this is where Isaiah finds hope. But thank God, don't you thank God that Jesus is still alive and still on the throne today. And in the midst of chaos, there's a burst of light that can come through for the church. And when we get to Isaiah 6, we see it. I love this. I love this. The heartbreaking message that Isaiah had to give. To give witness to this heartbreak. Hopefully. See, if he had been writing Israel's history, he probably not wouldn't have written it like that. Seeing all of this, the question is, is God still in control? My question to you, is God still in control? Has something happened in heaven where God has lost his throne? Has his purpose been forfeited or been defeated? Is the reason why we are seeing what we're seeing in our culture, is it because God is defeated? Are we seeing what we see because God's not on the throne or God's not in control? Are we see, has something happened in heaven that we have missed and something, and all of a sudden our society is like it is? Has it come to this place because God has lost all control? Does God, is God sending judgment because he's trying to protect his reputation? I mean, this is where Isaiah is, this is where we sit. You watch too much news, you can be discouraged, right? Is he losing the battle to the adversary? Is the church losing the battle to the adversary? With, with all of that in mind, we come to chapter 6 and verse 1. And the Bible says it was in the year that King Uzziah died. And this is interesting because King Uzziah ruled for 52 years in Judah. Matter of fact, and he died, 2 Chronicles 26 gives you more detail. But Uzziah, he was peace in his reign, peace prevailed. There was prosperity. There was flourishing. The people were happy. There appeared to be, in those 52 years, there appeared to be this appearance of religious activity. I mean, the festivals were still there. But what was going on is sin was being beneath the surface of what was taking place openly. Uzziah, as a man of peace, it appeared as though God had put his hand upon him, as though he was a Christian king. Right? Right? As though, as though it's, like, it's like for years us having a Christian president where uh, we know that, that God's hand is on it. And so there's a, there's a presumption of peace. There's a presumption of security. There's a presumption of what is taking. That's how it was. U Uzziah brought that kind of peace. He brought that kind of security. He brought that kind of assurance to the people of God. When he ruled, peace was there. God used him in that moment. He was a symbolism of security and blessing for 52 years. And all of a sudden, King Uzziah dies. You know how he died? You all know how King Uzziah died? He died because of pride. He died because of pride because he tried to be a priest when he was only a king. And God killed him. He stepped out of the order God had for him. And he was not to be in the priesthood. And when he stepped out of that, God took him. So the question is, what was going on? 
Here, here. And so in the midst of all this, what does Isaiah do? He runs to the temple. I think that's what I'd do too. (laughs) I think that's what we need to do today. The house of God should be full. We should be running to the temple, looking and seeking God in this midst. And Isaiah shows up. He shows up in the temple. Isaiah shows up here. He's in the right place. He's checking in with God. And when he shows up, God gives him a vision. All of a sudden, there's a supernatural ability to see. And he has a vision. God gives him this vision. And as Isaiah 6, it said, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and his train and his robe filled the temple. God, the Lord, sitting on his throne. His train and his glory was in the temple. It filled the temple. In other words, what was, what was he revealing to Isaiah? He was revealing to Isaiah that God was still on the throne. That God had not gone anywhere. God not, had not been left out. God had not been gone anywhere else. God was still on the throne. He was showing, he was showing Isaiah as he went on that God was still sovereign. God was still sovereign. He still is in control of the affairs of men. Do you know God's still in control? He's still sovereign. He's still in in control of the affairs of men. For we are not a people of deists. We're not deists. We're not rationalists. God is not abstract to us, as I said to the prayer group this morning. God is not abstract. God is not an idea. He's not philosophized. God is real. He sits on his throne. He's still there. He's still active in his people. Isaiah sees this. And he sees this. It's like in John uh, 12, 41, when John said, this was God, the son. He saw Jesus on the throne. Isaiah saw Jesus on the throne. You know, that's very comforting when the enemy is coming up over the hill to Isaiah. (laughs) Pretty comforting when we see all that's going on and we got all that's going on. Isn't it pretty comforting to know that God is still in his rightful place in our lives? When a nation is crumbling, when godliness seems to be increasing, and we have a seat like Isaiah said, but it's good to know that as the enemy is approaching to come over the hill, God still sits on his throne. He has not moved. He's still there. He's still sovereign. He still acts. He's still providential. He's worked in your life. Do you realize all that God has done to get you where you are today? That means God is an active God for his people. Woo! That's good news. We need this kind of encounter that Isaiah is having with God. The northern kingdom was about to be assaulted. Now look at verse 2. Look what it says in verse 2. It says in verse 2, it said, And above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two covered their face, two covered their feet, and two the fly. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture. It was a picture of the glory around the throne. In other words, God still had his angelic beings in place ready to be despondent to what God needed. It said two covered their face in honor of God's reverence. They're in the presence of God. Two covered their feet as signs of humility. They were on holy ground and two covered their feet. Two covered their face. 
They were in the presence of God, the allness of God. They were in on holy ground and two of their wings floated and they hovered over ready. And the reason was they positioned themselves. The holiness of God had them in ready place to be dispersed whenever God needed them to go. And to do. Does that sound like a God that has left his throne? Does it sound like a God that's been overturned and overthrown tonight? It sounds like a God that is in complete control. And so we see them. And then in verse 3, in other words, the picture we see is heaven is intact. Heaven is intact tonight. The enemy's trying to come over the hill, but heaven is still in its place tonight. I don't know about you, but that, that fires me up. These angels took the posture that we should take. Always coming into the presence of God with a sense of reverence and awe in our eyes. Always walking upon holy ground with a sense of humility in our life to serve. Always hovering ready to be dispatched by God at a moment when he says go. Is that not a posture that we too should be partaking? When we come into the house of God, we, do y'all think that we need a little bit of holiness back in the house of God? Again, a little bit more reverence back in God's house. A little bit more of humility back in the house of God and less focus on personality and less focus on position and title and a little more humility to serve and a little more people ready to go and do what God says. Yeah. Help us, Lord. Help me. Help us, Lord. There's this picture and they cry out. There's this, this, this. And so verse 3, we learn that nothing has happened to God's character. I mean, here, Isaiah, you could think something's happened to God's character. I mean, he sees all this. Where's God? But we realize when he gets this encounter with God, he realizes that nothing's happened to God's character. And the one cried to another. There's this one cry to another. There's this repeatedness. There's this repetitiveness, and, 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 and here it is. It's, it's, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The view of God and Christian experience. Isaiah's view of God, holy, holy, it is a triune cry. I believe it represents the holiness of the triune God, who's the Father is holy, the Son is holy, and the Spirit is holy. <laughs> Woo! That's good stuff. Holy, 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 unlike us. Holy in infinity. Holy. He's separate. The holiness represents his separation from us. He is consistently holy. He does not make mistake. He's still sovereign. He doesn't have air. He's not, he's not, he doesn't have flaw. He is consumed with holiness and the whole earth is filled with his glory. Verse 4, the foundations begin to shake and the whole temple shakes and smoke. Nature reacts to his holiness. It is though as though when at Mount Sinai we see what happened at Mount Sinai, God displayed his power and his glory. But here Isaiah is having this, this encounter inside the presence of God. And inside the presence of God, God reveals his glory. God reveals his presence. God reveals his character. God's revealing he's on the throne. He's revealing that he's sovereign. He's revealing that he's holy. Don't you think we need that kind of encounter in our churches to realize that God is on the throne and when we come into the house of God to experience his holiness and presence? In our lives. 
We see the parable. We saw behind the parable. We saw the punishment and the consequences in this. Now we're in the midst of the presence of God. We're in this presence. The only thing that will anchor your soul in the midst of a time of crisis in our world like this is the presence of God. God is sovereign. He's absolutely holy. He is absolutely glorious. His glory fully intact. He's infinite. The presence of a holy God is the most needful thing in our time. And we need to get a vision of God in that way. That dramatically affects you and me. That dramatically affects. That, that brings about an encounter where we have a reverence and awe for God again. What is God looking for in this hour? What is needful? What is needful is that the church learns to remain in the presence of God. And even though the enemy is down the street and coming up the hill, when we recognize that God is on the throne and he's still sovereign and he's still working and we get in his presence, all of a sudden we realize nothing's changed. He's still in control. He's in his presence. And I want to close with these two things because there's two things that happened to Isaiah that brought this change. His response to being in the presence of God should be the response that we have every time we come into the presence of God. Verse 5, look at his response. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. He didn't just say, oh God, you're cool. You're cool, God. No, 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 no. He got in the presence of God. And he got in the power and the presence of God and he realized he got in that presence and he, he, woe is me. Isn't it interesting he uses the word woe? The word woe is the very six judgments that were, came that he mentioned in the chapter. He applied that to himself. It was a word that was in describing a, a curse. It's described woe. It means it is a word that means to bring curse upon. It means to, to bring in other words, what he's saying, in the presence of God, I recognize my humanity and woe unto me, for I am a man who has a, a flesh that is sinful, a flesh that is, that, is, that is beyond the nature, that is natural, but in the presence of God, I am undone. The word undone is a powerful word. It means in the Hebrew to be falling apart or disintegrated. Do you realize that what happens when you get in the presence of God? We become, we begin to disintegrate. We realize what we really are in the presence of God. Wow. He comes into this place and he's, he has this encounter. In the presence of God, his majesty, his sovereignty, his holiness, his glory. He's fallen apart. He's ruined. He's overshadowed with his sin nature. The presence of God should always remind us we have a sin nature, but we always have a God who provided for us and a God who helps us. Hmm. Ezekiel collapsed when he came into the presence of God. Do you all remember what happened to John in the book of Revelation when he came into the presence of God? The Bible said he fell as a man that was dead. Peter, James, and John, seeing God, fell into a, a trance or state or a coma state. In other words, what, what is this? What are we seeing? We're seeing the trauma of holiness. And sometimes as the church, we need to experience the trauma of God's holiness. 
You know what the trauma of God's holiness is? Is when God's presence overpowers our natural man. And when God's presence overpowers our natural man, we go into the trauma of holiness. We can recognize he is holy. There is times I have fell on my face recognizing the holiness of God. I could not move in his presence. I realized he was real. I realized the tangible power of God. And when you get in that encounter, you can't help but leave changed. I think we need some more Holy Ghost trauma around here. The trauma of holiness, the trauma of his glory and majesty and holiness. Because I, why? He said, because I am a man of unclean lips. Out of you, listen, why did he say that? Because out of the abundance of the heart, man speaks. Where is sin most likely to manifest? Most readily, most easily, and most publicly. I have unclean lips. What is he saying? He is saying, he's saying this, I have unclean lips. It is through the lips where sin is likely to manifest. Out of the abundance of the heart, mouth that speaks. Words of life. All of these things come out. And all of a sudden, the manifestation. And here's what happens. The presence of God allows you not to compare yourself with Israel. Isaiah was not comparing himself with Israel because compared to Israel, he looked pretty good. But he compared himself with God. When we come into the presence of God, our priority in his presence is to always measure ourselves by God's presence, by his holiness, by his manifestation, by his glory. Because when we compare ourselves with others, we look pretty good. But when we compare ourselves with God, all of a sudden God sees us like we are. He sees us. He sees, he sees us. He sees where our uncleanliness is. He sees where, where, we, have, where we have come into this place of uncleanliness. And then he begins to purify Isaiah. He takes a coal off the altar, and where did he touch him? He touched him on his mouth. And what you see is this genuine cleansing. Is, and look, it's, it's amazing because look what he says there in the Scripture. And I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me having a hand of coal. And he had taken from the tongs of the altar and he touched my mouth and he said, and, he, and he, he, he touched my mouth. He knew he was unclean. He knew the genuine cleanliness. God was cleansing the agony of genuine repentance. Iniquity. It said iniquity was, was taken away and sin was purged. It is the picture of forgiveness. What kind of person is God looking for in the time of crisis in this nation? A person that has a vision of God's holiness, a person that is aware of its sin, and a person that understands the touch of God to bring repentance into their life. The fire on the lips was the atonement that was taking place. It's burning the iniquity of way. You know repentance is agony sometimes. 
The agony of repentance, sometimes the push through the repentance of life and the push through what God is doing. Pastor Adam, if you'll come. And then you have this proclamation in verse 8. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? He said, Here I am, send me. Go and tell this people. Go and tell this people all God is looking for. Go tell this people that God forgives, that God cleanses, and that God judges. Go warn after and after. Go into the presence of God. Go. When you go. And he says, it's interesting. He says, he says well, how long should I go? He says in a later chapter, he said, you're going to go. They're not going to hear. They're not going to receive. Some of them are not going to change. Some of them are not going to, going to turn. They're not going to change. But he said, how long should I go? How long should I continue to go? And in verse 12, he says, the Lord, he said, until the cities lay waste without inhabitants. Verse 11, till the houses are without men. To the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men from far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. He said, how long, how long, how long should I do this? In other words, he says, you go and you tell of the holiness of God until the land, until everything is gone. In other words, we never stop the gospel. We never stop presenting the gospel. So what is the hope of this? What does Isaiah base his hope on? Are we doomed? Is God finished? God says, no. When you go, Isaiah, there'll be those who won't listen. There'll be those that don't repent. There'll be those that'll ignore. There'll be those that mock. There'll be those that won't change. But he said in verse 13, It's what I call the Great Commission of the Old Testament. He said, when you go, there's going to be a tenth. There's going to be a tenth. There's going to be a portion. There's going to be a remnant of God that are going to answer and respond. I'm telling you, this is the hour for the remnant. This is the hour for the remnant. This is the hour for the remnant. This is the hour that God is raising the remnant up. This is the hour that God is going to raise the remnant. And I want to tell you that in the midst of it, God said, you have to go because even though when I'm finished with the judgment I'm bringing upon Israel, there's going to be two things remain, seed and a stump. Now, we had in our yard years ago, we had a tree that was cut down and it was just a stump. Now, I'm not a horticulturist. I I don't know anything about nature, y'all. Nothing. But I watched that tree the next six years. I watched that tree grow back into almost full growth from a stump. I thought, my goodness. God said there's a remnant. There's a tenth. There's going to be, when the judgment comes, when, when consequences of society come, there will be a remnant of people And there'll be a stump that's left. You know how a stump regrows? A stump can always regrow as long as it continues to remain attached to the roots. But here's the key. 
The key to the fluidity of a stump growing back is that when branches begin to grow, that they're constantly pruned. You know why you prune them? Because if you don't prune the the branches, all of the nourishment and strength goes to those branches and it depletes the roots. But when you prune them, all of the root supply and nutrients are evenly dispersed and the tree grows properly. Isn't that good? How many know that in a season like this, God's got to constantly prune? God's got to constantly. And I'm telling you, society may try to take the church down to a stump. But as long as there's a stump, there's hope. Y'all hear what I'm saying? As long as there, no matter what they, no matter what comes down the line, as long as there's a stump, God can bring it back. Stand with me tonight. We have to desire encounters with God. We have to desire these promises of God. There is a season when a tree is cut down that that stump is stunned. They call it, uh, uh, they, they call it something. I looked it up today. I was looking at it because I was interested. And, and they call it... Uh, They call it a restoration season. It is a restoration season where that stump becomes becomes neutral. It doesn't, nothing happens to it. There's a season where it recovers. There's a season where it comes back. There's a season where there's restoration, where there's the, the depletion, where it's building up again from the roots, supply in order to grow again. It's the roots will grow deeper, and all of a sudden it begins to find nourishment and hunts for nourishment. But in that time, it's not growing. It's just being rooted. It's just being rooted. It's just being rooted. And this is a season in the church in this hour when we see all that's happening. The church is being rooted, being rooted, being rooted so that we can flourish even greater and better than what we have been. The constant pruning is to secure that the root system stays secure. How much do we desire the presence of God tonight? Would you just lift your hands to the Lord? Do we really desire His presence? Do we really want His presence? Do we really want an encounter with Him? Do we really want to know Him? Father, I just pray You've not, even though the enemy looks like he's coming over the hill, You're still on the throne. You've not been dispersed. You've not... Your character has not left. You, you, you have not given up. You still, the throne is intact. The, 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 your glory is still there. Your power is still there. Your awesomeness is still there. You're still enthroned. You still are moving in the hearts of people and men tonight. We employ that like Isaiah. You comforted him with letting him see a vision of the throne. And God, we pray you will let us see your majesty and your glory from time to time. That we would pursue that. That God, we know that even though the enemy may try to cut us off and cut our fruit off and cut our vineyards down, even though as long as there's a stump that remains, there's still hope for a nation without God. As long as the stump remains, there's still the opportunity that God, you can bring growth back in to a nation that has been cut off. 
We pray for that revival. We pray for that move of God. We pray for that to come back. Don't turn us over yet, God. But let us flourish and flow. Let the promise come forth. Let the promise be manifested, God. May we be a vineyard again. May we be a choice vineyard again where justice begins to flow, where righteous justice and righteousness will flow, that the blood in the streets will dry up, that the despair will dry up, but that, God, we would be a choice vineyard again. Remove the stones again. Bring your choice, bring your choice vines again and plant them again. Build your tower of protection again in our lives. Let our hearts be the vineyards that you grow and the vineyards that you prepare so that choice wine may flow. We just pray that we desire your holiness. Come in contact with you tonight. Come in contact with a holy God. A God that will continue to forgive and cleanse and judge. Isaiah was touched. What kind of people God needs in this hour is people who have been touched by God. People who have been touched by His holiness. We thank you, God. Now I want you just to take a moment. And I want you just to pray a prayer of repentance. Just pray a prayer of repentance and say, God, if there's anything in my heart, if there's anything in my heart, if there's anything in my heart that keeps me from you, that keeps me, is there any unforgiveness? Is there any, is there any sin that remains in my life? Will you purify me? Wash me tonight? Cleanse me through your holiness, God? Please come and purify your vineyard. Please come. Please come. Please come. Touch my lips. Touch where the manifestation of my sin is. As Isaiah's lips were the manifestation of where sin was manifested, I pray, God, that you will manifest. Put your hand upon the manifestation of sin tonight, the manifestation of sin in our life. God, we want you to be holy in our lives. Please let your holiness and, 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 and let your glory fall again. Let us encounter you again. Powerfully encounter you again. Let us understand that you judge. You're a God who will judge, who will bring judgment. We've got to quit lying to this generation that God is not a God of judgment. Sin has consequences. Stop feeding the narrative that everybody's self-image has got to be right. The truth is, God is the one that gives us our self-image. He's the one that gives us security. We don't look to ourselves, for the heart is desperately wicked. Holiness come. God come. Let your promise come. Let this stump grow again. The holiness of your presence move in our hearts again. Let us experience your presence. Let me just say that this week, this, this time of prayer and fasting, the Lord has really put his finger on a lot of areas of my life personally. And I want to tell you that God has really dealt with me about my personal holiness, about my personal walk with God. And I feel like I got to say that. I don't know why I got to say this. I just feel like I need to. And I really don't have to, but I feel like I need to. I want to. But I feel like if there's anyone out there that, that, that I've hurt or that... 
I need to ask for forgiveness for, I pray that you'll forgive me. If there's anyone that holds an odd or holds a, you know, watching live stream, those who, who, who hold unforgiveness or maybe find a disappointment in my life, I ask for your forgiveness. I ask that you will forgive me. Because we all have to come into the place of experiencing God's holiness. May He touch your life. May He touch you this week. May He touch you during this time of fasting and prayer as we call back to God's holiness and to His presence. Thank you for joining us for River Valley Community Church's podcast. If you feel led to give, you can click on the donation link in the description or visit our website at rivervalleymadison.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share with your friends. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.